Let's pray together. Father, you truly are the great and gracious God who has provided for us salvation through Jesus Christ. The Lord is our salvation. Father, I pray this morning as we open your word that you would minister to our hearts. I pray, O oh God, that you would move our lives to reflect the greatness of our salvation, our love for our great God, that this culture that we find ourselves living in might see in us a representation of the reality of Jesus Christ and who he is. Lord, more than ever, the people in our neighborhoods, the people in our workplaces, the people in our families, the people in our churches need an authentic and real presentation through both word and deed of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our salvation. So Father, I pray this morning that your spirit would lead us into the scriptures and to understand what you have for us today in Jesus' name, amen. So actually, before we um, embark upon this morning's um, teaching, I need to clear up something that I guess was confusing last week. Maybe there was a lot of confusing stuff, but at least there was, there was something that uh, many of you were uh, raised some questions about. I thought I'd better go over it because if some raised, maybe there's a lot of people who were um, confused about what we were talking about. In particular, it was making some of you sad because you got the impression last week on what I taught that we won't know anybody in heaven. And, um, and that comes because of the prophetic picture that I shared with you from Isaiah 65, 17, where the picture of the eternal kingdom is, is stated by Isaiah this way, the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. You see, I believe that this verse helps to explain how there can be no more tears, no more sorrow in heaven. Because if we arrived in heaven, in the new, earth, heaven, new heaven and new earth, and people were missing who we loved, there would, I can't help but think there would be a, a, great, um, a great deal of personal agony and sorrow that would be very, very difficult to go away. I, in fact, I can't imagine it going away. And so I think this simply teaches that... that that the Lord God will remove from our memory as if things that were didn't even exist, that we might not ruminate and, 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 and be sorrowful about things that we knew from before. So the question then comes up, so will we not know anybody in heaven? Well, no, I, I absolutely believe that we will know all of our friends and our family, everyone who we fellowshiped with and got to know uh, in heaven, and, and I, I base it on that, who, who love the Lord Jesus and end up there. And, and I absolutely believe that because Jesus taught in Luke 16, 9, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into heavenly dwellings. So, how would you be welcomed into heavenly dwellings of friends that you didn't know? So the whole idea here is, you know, 
you can't welcome who you don't recognize, and I believe you will absolutely recognize. Now, we won't be married in heaven, but I'm convinced we will socialize, especially as you use worldly wealth. That's why I buy my wife things, because I want her to welcome me into her heavenly dwelling. When I'm wandering around the streets of gold, aimlessly hoping someone would invite me in, I can know at least one person. I use my worldly wealth to gain her friendship, and there you go. I'm just kidding with you. I think, I think that we all know this is gospel investing. This is investing in the work of God and, and invest in people, not in material things. Invest in people because you're going to have people for eternity. Not, you're not going to need the things that uh, you think are so important. So we're embarking on a new series today. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Um, if you're like me you're wondering where your country went. Where, where, did, where did Canada go? I, I, I went to sleep one day, I woke up, and I have no idea where I'm living. I, I'm living in a strange land. And I think people, it's not just Canada, it's all over the world. There's been this escalation of what in the world is going on? Maybe for some of you it isn't that, but for me, you know, having lived these years, it's like I don't even recognize the place I live anymore. I, I don't recognize the way people think. I don't recognize their illogic. I don't recognize, I, I, I feel like I'm in the Matrix or in Alice in Wonderland. Do you, do you feel like that? It's like, what is this? It's, it's like I, I had a nightmare and I woke up and I realized, oh no, it wasn't a nightmare. It actually is the way it really is. And that's, where, that's, that's really the place we're living in. And, and it, uh, it, it's, it happened, of course, to God's people. It's happened to them throughout time. You know, in, in Psalm 137, 4, the, the people of God are, are sort of lamenting, how can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? Because we are living in exile. We, we, we don't recognize the way things are. And Peter, of course, 1 Peter 1, 1 says, to God's elect, strangers, scattered, the word strange seems to describe very well where we're living. At one point, and, and many of you in this room uh, lived in, in a time when, for the most part, Christianity was the respected majority opinion of the country of Canada. Now, we all knew that it wasn't actually a majority. Uh, Christians were, was a very broad tent, that, but nevertheless, Canada's considered a Christian country. And, and Christian thought basically governed the, the, the thought uh, of the day. And, and the way laws were formed, the way people thought, the social experiences were based upon Judeo-Christian uh, values. And then, of course, we watched it slipping, slipping, slipping away until we become sort of um, a, a tolerated minority. Well, that was then. We're no longer a tolerated minority. We are taking up space fringe. That's who we are now. And if you're actually out in the marketplace, you know what I'm saying is true. There are several competing discipleships that are taking place in our world. And I'm just going to specifically talk about sort of the North American context. That's what I'm most familiar with. Because in terms of the reality of discipleship, everybody follows somebody. A disciple is somebody who follows somebody. Everybody's a disciple of somebody. 
And there are basically three main discipleships that seem to occupy. One isn't main because it's us. It's sort of the minor fringe. We're ministering from the margins. But the two major things that are going on in this country, the two major discipleships, one is cultural discipleship, which is people following the majority thought of the culture. And that majority thought today has changed dramatically from what it was. Now, I don't want to get super philosophical with you today. I recommend, I highly recommend a new book written by Carl Truman called Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. It's a, it's a discovery. It's a, the book is a discovery of, of about 300 years of history, philosophical history, tracing names that are familiar to many of you, like Rousseau, Nietzsche, Freud, Hegel, uh, Marx. Those individuals who actually shaped the thinking that we presently are finding ourselves under, who were worshipers of thinking, worshipers of the mind, so that to the, to, today we find ourselves in a, uh, the spirit of the day, the zitgeist of the day is formed by the authority of inner feelings. What people think, how, how people feel inside is their authority. What's... And, and that's not really new to any of us, but what's gone beyond, which is new to us, I think, is how now the highest form or the highest meaning of community is to affirm the thinking of everybody and anybody. It's to not challenge the way anyone thinks, because how they think is their authority. And you in the community are expected to abide by that new social contract, which is how people think, is legitimately their authority. And your job is to affirm them. The only boundaries to this new way of socializing, the social engineering of our culture, is to not give consent. So anything goes unless you don't give personal consent, and that's particularly in the area of sexuality. Anything goes as long as you consent. So, I, for instance, may be a biological man, but if I feel like a female, that's my story, that's my truth, that's my authority, and you must affirm it. If I, walk, if I went to the Ontario Tech campus tomorrow, dressed like this, just me, I guarantee to you that I could tell people, one by one, that I am a tall Chinese woman. I'm trying to pick something that's pretty bizarre. In, case, in my case. Well, maybe I couldn't sell them on the tall. 
I guarantee to you that the majority of those students on that campus would affirm it. And as a result, we being people who bring the truth of God's word to people need to understand we are, our starting point for where we are bringing truth is so different from any other time, at least in modern history. Because this is, not a, this is not a modern thing, this is an old thing. This is just Gnosticism repackaged. Gnosticism being the, the, the fragmentation between spirit and body, so, so the body, we're trapped in our bodies, okay? Our bodies are, make us a prisoner we're trapped, in, and, and our bodies are to be subdued. They're, they're to be rele- we're to be released from our bodies. Therefore, if your body tells you you're a biological male in a Gnostic world, you don't have to pay attention to that. It's what, what do you think you are? Because that's who you really are in the world that we're living. Now, you, cannot, you can see that that presents a humongous challenge to Christian faith based upon propositional truth. Which is why the Sermon on the Mount, which is our new series, becomes so crucial to us because Jesus is going to develop for us in three chapters of the New Testament, as recorded by by Matthew, how to live from the margins of society so that people might notice the authentic reality of Jesus Christ. It's what we say matters. But how we live is going to matter even more. So it is necessary for us to provide for those who manufacture their own truth a living example of the reality of Jesus Christ, that Christ in your life really works. It's, a really, it's really a thing, and he really exists. And your life is dissatisfying And you ought to consider the life of Christ and Christianity. Now, the other cultural discipleship, or the other discipleship that we, uh, major discipleship in this world of Canada, is a religious discipleship. Following of religions. In other words, the authority is rules and rituals and ceremonies and laws. Whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or Judaism or whatever, that the human life is governed by rules and regulations and laws and ceremony restrictions. And that's the way that you please God or the gods. Now, we all know as Christians that you can't legislate away sin. You can't build enough fences or strong enough walls to prevent yourself from sinning. There has to be something change inside. There has to be a transformation that takes place. So both of these discipleships, the cultural discipleship and the religious discipleship, are inadequate for the, for the, the, for the, uh, for the human life. They don't measure up. They don't provide ultimate satisfaction. So into that milieu, whether it's Gnosticism and the whole idea of the mind and how I feel being the authority of my life or rules and restrictions and regulations trying to corral my life, the whole, into that whole reality, Jesus Christ steps into our world and says, not in my kingdom. 
My kingdom is going to be entirely different than what you see around you. With that, I want to pick up Matthew chapter 5. By the way, Christianity, because of all of this, we've gone from respected majority to tolerated minority to marginalized fringe. And Carl Truman writes this, Christianity is on its way to being considered a dangerous and lunatic fringe. We are probably, in my opinion, already there. So how are we going to minister from the dangerous, lunatic fringe? That's the call on us through this series. We're going to learn how Christ teaches us to live in this particular reality. That's what the Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount is a call to the third, Christian discipleship. What does it really look like to follow Christ? This is our calling. The greatest calling in your life is discipleship. We are called to be makers of disciples. That's what we do, all of us. That's who we are. We're to become disciples, making disciples. It's our calling. And I want to show you that in, as we begin this morning, the King's Sermon teaches us how. The King's Sermon is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're just going to deal with Matthew 5, 1 to 6 today. But I want you to know that the, con- in the content of this sermon conclusively defines not just how we're to live, but more spectacularly, who Jesus is. It's really critical for us because we can get so... Uh, anthropocentric or centered on ourselves in this Sermon on the Mount, studying who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to act and how we're supposed to live, that we lose the glory of Jesus, that we lose the splendor and and, and magnificence of gazing at Him. Because the Sermon on the Mount legitimizes Jesus as truly King of the universe and true Messiah. He is the one who has come to fulfill the prophecies of, Ma- of Messiah. But he starts off this way, by um, stunning his audience. And his audience is his disciples. It says, in, now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. So this is fundamentally, he's teaching his disciples. He's teaching people who, are, who belong to him. Keep in mind, that's what this is about. He's teaching those who belong to him. But he stuns them with this statement in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop when he said that. Because... Think about it. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were, in fact, the seminary professors of the day, the teachers of the law. They, from the perspective of the disciples, had reached the pinnacle of religious credentials. They're the very top. That's the target. That's what we're aiming for, isn't it, Jesus? We're aiming for them. And Jesus stuns them by saying, unless your righteousness surpasses them, their righteousness You can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. You you can't even be in my kingdom. You can't be a Christian unless your righteousness surpasses theirs. 
What kind of righteousness is this? This better righteousness. Well, we know, having studied theology for all these years together, we know that this righteousness is a righteousness that comes from Christ, comes from God. It's a gift of his grace given to those that we might be in his kingdom, that we might belong to him. But he stuns them with that statement. Now they're looking for, well, what does this better righteousness look like? Or more specifically, what does this better righteousness live like? He begins to teach them and says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Today, all we can deal with is about that much. In fact, that's going to be a challenge. This is the word of God to us this morning. So, this is the King's Sermon. So, how do, we, how do we establish this sermon in context? Well, Matthew establishes it this way. He begins his gospel by pointing out through all the genealogies of the kings and, and, and all the, 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 that Jesus is the culmination of all that religious leadership and political leadership through the ages, that now the king of the universe has arrived, the king of kings. And this sermon is the sermon from the king, the king's sermon. And he is presenting his leadership and his expectations for his kingdom. And we learn at the end of Matthew that he has all authority. We don't have individual authority. Our minds are not the authority like the cultural context we live in. No, Jesus has all authority. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to him. And he is establishing a kingdom of subjects who will live saved, brothers and sisters, who will live saved in a world that is confused about how to live. But he he is presented as one who has come to a world that needs a savior because it is sinful. Jesus is that savior who has come in the world to clean up sin, not to affirm it, but to actually come and die on a cross to pay the penalty of human sins, that those who respond to him might be brought into his kingdom by faith, through his grace. So this is the presentation that that Matthew leads us up to. And then just before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, he's choosing this leadership of who will lead in his kingdom. Now he's telling them how they ought to live in the kingdom before mankind. But the setting, you'll notice, is it starts in verse 24. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. From the north, from the east, from the west, from the south, 
Jesus' fame. In fact, it's interesting that Matthew talks about Syria because we know that Jesus came when, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. It was considered sort of the range of the, the most important of the governors, the most important leader. But in truth, now Jesus, this obscure, apparently this obscure teacher, is now gaining fame that, that covers the expanse of that political system and reality right there. Jesus' teachings are becoming known that's the setting. And he, it says, he saw the crowds, he goes up and he sits on the mountainside. Why would he do that? There are no details that are extraneous in God's word, ever. So why did he do that? This, this launches us into the series with, with the credentials of Jesus by just sitting on the mountainside and teaching. In Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4, the expected Messiah. Now it will come about that. It, now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. This is precisely what Jesus is now illustrating as he sits down on the mountain to teach his disciples. I am the fulfillment of the prophetic teaching on Messiah. I am the one who's come to, to the mountain to sit and teach about the ways, uh, about my ways and about how to walk in my paths to the people in social and political exile, to those who are the margins in, in the margins of life, people who lack and suffer deprivation. Jesus has come to offer gifts of grace from God to broken people. This is good news. Who is this good news for? This is good news for the down and outers. This is good news for, the, for those who've been overlooked. This is good news for the disenfranchised. This is good news for those who aren't popular. This is good news for those who aren't to, at, at the highest places in life. Because when you're thinking about who are the blessed in life, the picture that we have is quite different from the picture that Jesus is now about to present. When we think of the blessed in life, they're the healthy, they're the wealthy, they're the, the movers and the shakers and the shapers of life. They're the ones who are popular, they're the ones who always elected as the class uh, prefect or whatever. And Jesus is about to reverse everything, the great reversal. So this is good news for me. I think it might be good news for you as well. I don't know, maybe, maybe you're the high and mighty, maybe you're the brilliant, maybe you're the ones who are always picked, maybe you're the go-getters, maybe you're the, the, the top of your class, maybe that's who you are. And that doesn't negate you from being in the kingdom of God, by the way, let's make sure we understand that. There are some pretty brilliant and amazing people who've come to know Christ. This is not a, a sermon that's sort of a quest to see how low you can become. Because that's just trying to enter the kingdom of God by works. This is just Jesus saying, you might be wrong about who you think is blessed. Because you judge differently than I do. 
And so we start off by finding out it's the poor in spirit. And that shouldn't surprise us if we know Isaiah 57, verse 15, because Messiah was supposed to do this. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with a contrite and lowly spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. This is the good news for those who, who, who understand that, that, that before they have anything to give, before we have anything to give, we desperately need something from God. It shouldn't surprise any of us that when God was giving out the Ten Commandments, which were no easy task to follow, we all know that, he starts off in Exodus, verse, Exodus 20, verse 1, by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Now, love the Lord your God. Serve him only. And, and then he goes on to give the commandments. That, that the reality is we need first to understand that, that we are in spiritual poverty. We have nothing to give unless God gives us something. And so the presentation here is that, that the good news of the gospel is that those who are always left behind, the crushed, the manhandled, the rare, those who rarely get justice, the re those in wretched situations, the helpless, they, they can be in the kingdom of God. They, they can be subjects of, of the king of kings. They can be loved by him and, and, and looked after by him. Don't you remember it was Isaiah who's, who recognized his own poverty of spirit when he said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. How could God have a special assignment for me? It, it was Peter who, in gazing at Jesus, who said, away from me, I, I'm, a, I'm a sinful man, I'm not worthy of being in your presence. It was, it was Paul who said, who is sufficient for these things? The good news of the gospel that is that those who in this life are traditionally left behind can find a place in the kingdom that Jesus is building just by recognizing their great need for him. Theirs, emphatic in the original text, theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The highest order of life is to be found in the kingdom of heaven. And it's, it's in present tense. Theirs is presently the kingdom of heaven. We are, we, if you know Jesus Christ, you're presently in the kingdom of heaven. The full manifestation of it is yet to, to, yet to come. I, I notice that it's uh, not only the poor in spirit, but... It says, those who mourn, verse 4, those who are brokenhearted. That shouldn't surprise us. In Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good, bring good news to the afflicted or brokenhearted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. You know, in our, and I, and I think about this often, 
you know, our church services. We come here and we call them a celebration service. And Sunday by Sunday, we bring a celebration service. But for great numbers of us on any given Sunday, we're actually brokenhearted. Our hearts are not really in the mood for celebration. And you know what? Sometimes we put pressure on each other and we wonder, maybe I'm not spiritual enough because I'm not happy all the time. Maybe I, you know, maybe I should, you know, I should just suck it up and be happy like everybody else. And, you know, big, slick evangelism church kind of pushes that down our throats. It's all about celebration and happy. I know you. I know you. You know me. We're brokenhearted a lot. Because life brings a lot of grief and sorrow and trouble. And you know what the good news about this is? Jesus says, I don't exclude you from my kingdom. You're who I came for. This Sunday morning, I'm meeting with you, the brokenhearted, who couldn't celebrate today. We don't have much lament in church. The challenge is because some people are happy, some people are in lament. So what do you pick? Who's going to sign up for First Baptist Downcast Church? Nobody names their church that. We're the Baptist Church of the Brokenhearted. That'd be a good name. It would be a good name. People say, oh, I got too many troubles all week long. I don't want to go to the brokenhearted church on Sunday. Jesus says, you're welcome in my kingdom because I came for you. I don't know about you, but I, I find myself profoundly sad. I've been sad for quite some time. I, you know, you put on a veneer that's happy and all that, but, but I'm sad. I'm sad about our world. I'm sad about how people are being treated. I'm sad about what sin does to people. I'm sad about people I love going through really hard times. I'm brokenhearted for, for the way of our world and for, for the fact that people have lost loved ones they care about profoundly can't be replaced. Now, that never gets fixed. I don't think I realized this until my dad passed away. You know, because it's not until somebody really important and significant to you, somebody close to you, that you realize that I'll never be the same, ever. We're never the same. And Jesus is looking at your heart. Keep in mind that Jesus is never pictured as laughing in the scriptures, not once. You can't find it. You know, we've, we've sort of made a thing, a caricature of Jesus. Oh, he probably had a good humor and he's probably the joke, uh, joking around all the time. He's never, ever described as laughing, ever. In fact, Isaiah says he's the man of sorrows. I, I don't think Jesus laughed very much. You know, we have a picture of him looking at Jerusalem just like grieved that I've come and and, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had only known of the day of your visitation, if you only knew what this was, I would, I, like a mother hen, I'd love to take you and gather you as chicks under my wings and just take you. 
And, and I, think, I think when we think deeply about ourselves and about God and about sin and about tragedy and about hurt and pain and how people are treating each other and disunity and canceling and all of that, I, I don't, there isn't a whole lot to be happy about because we're brokenhearted. We're brokenhearted about sin, what it does in our lives and what it, how it grieves our Heavenly Father. And I think Jesus was grieved a lot. But what, is we, what are we promised? What are the brokenhearted promised? They will be comforted by God himself. By God himself. People try the best they can to encourage and comfort and help. But nothing compares to the comfort of God himself. This is, this is a promise to you who are brokenhearted. And he talks then about the meek, those who are found at the back of the line, the humble, the gentle, the meek, the little. <laughs> you know, Jesus described himself only one time in the scriptures. You know how he described himself? I am low and meek of, I'm, I'm meek and low of heart. That's how Jesus described himself. So guess who's welcome in the kingdom of Christ? The go-getters, the aggressive, the assertive, sure, if they know Christ. But most of us aren't that. Most of us are little and forgotten. We haven't accomplished much. We're never picked for anything. We never were picked for anything. But we genuinely value grace because there's no pretense of deserving it. You know, that's, that's, what, that's what, you know, I'm thankful for. Because those who think they deserve grace don't know anything about grace. And, and these are the ones who have no malice or vengeance on people because they know that when they're criticized or whatever, it, it's more than deserved. That's the one thing that I thank God that I've kind of learned over the years. I just, as criticism comes my way, I think, I can't believe it's so little, so, so little criticism. Because I'm so flawed. I make so many mistakes. You would think there'd be more criticism. I, I deserve more. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Is his grace is so amazing that we shouldn't get defensive, we should be teachable. And our world, you know, says, well, these, the assertive, the go-getters, the the rich and famous, all of that. They, they say to us, look at you, you weirdos from the fringe, you can have your heaven. 
We just want the corner office. We just want the earth. You, you go ahead and think about your dream, your pie in the sky, by and by thing. You, you go ahead and think about that. But we're going to take the earth. And Jesus says, no, no, actually you aren't. You see what Jesus says here? No, the meek will inherit the earth. The ones who belong to Jesus, the ones who trust in him, he has an inheritance for them. And it's this earth, a gift from the giver to those who were never takers. They get this earth renewed. The new heaven, the new earth, and it'll be spectacular. That's what we heard about last week. That's, that's what Jesus is talking about. And then finally, you know, finally, it's, it's been grace, grace, grace in these three verses. The grace to the poor of spirit, grace to those who mourn, grace to the meek. And then there's a response of faith to those in the kingdom. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Who are the blessed? The blessed are those who recognize the incredible grace of Jesus' salvation and in turn are ravenous for the right ways of God. Who've come to realize that, 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 that God is all in all, that Christ is all in all. Imagine a church of, full of people like this. Can, can, you imagine, can you imagine a church full of people who are ravenous for the righteousness of God? We would, we would set this city uh, on fire, not like spiritual fire, not physical fire, because that wouldn't be good for the kingdom. These are the people who, the priority of their basic desires of life, hunger and thirst, are for the right ways of God, living the right way before Jesus. That consumes their hunger and thirst. That's it. They, in their own life, in this world, long for justice. Righteousness and justice are, are parallel ideas, synonymous ideas in the scriptures. The justice of God. We are people to long for the right ways of God and justice, justice in our country. That's God's work. And when you long for the righteousness of God, when you hunger and thirst for the right ways of Jesus Christ, you will have no appetite for sin. The biggest battle in this world is, for, is over sin. Sin that crushes people, sin that destroys people. The new way of thinking about how to deal with sin is just to eliminate sin altogether. Nothing's sin. However I feel is fine. So that's how the world is dealing with sin. There's one problem with that. Sin doesn't take a holiday just because your feelings think it's okay. Sin continues to destroy you. It's like a, it's like a bad renter, like a, like a bad boarder you might have in your house. Maybe paying a little bit of rent, but they're trashing your property. That's what sin is like. 
And the religious, well, they say rules and laws. We just have more laws and more restrictions and more fences. And they tried all that. That's why Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness is a better righteousness, it isn't working for you. Religions try that. They can't tame sin. But if you hunger and thirst for the right ways of God, you have no desire for sin. It's John who said in his letter, 1 John 3, 6, a very startling, startling verse. He actually, in that verse, points out that those who abide in Christ do not sin. Those who abide in him do not sin. You know when we start sinning? When we cut our ties from Jesus, remaining in him, staying in him. When, when we stop with Bible, stop with prayer, stop with singing, stop with serving, stop with gathering, stop with fasting, all of the things that bring us to abiding in Christ, whereby we develop a hunger and thirst for him, when you let up in those, and some of us have over these last couple of years, you let up in those, your hunger shifts your hunger shifts to sin. I'll close with this. The prodigal son. He left his father. And it says that he went out and when he was hungry, he ate corn husks. And he thought about the fact that his brother was home eating wonderful food in his father's table. He realized that, that he was hungry eating the corn husks, but they were never satisfying. And he finally became starved, so starved, it tells us, that he turned to the Father. When you have finally figured out that this world, feeding on this world doesn't satisfy, you will turn in your starvation to the Father. And what's the promise? And they will be filled. Father, thank you so much for your grace to us. Thank you for the truth that you've given to us. Lord, we... We understand that we need to understand our culture and where we live because we are ministering from the fringe, from the margins. Nobody's interested in what we have to say because they've already decided that their feelings are king. And what we say may be written somewhere, it may appear logical, it may even be classified as, as truth. It doesn't matter to them because their feelings are their authority. On the other hand, there's the religious Lord who just think they need to put up more rules, more laws, more ritual, more ceremony, and surely they'll be able to tame their waywardness. That isn't true. You have called a people into your kingdom. And you've called a people, Lord, who come from some very 
difficult backgrounds and circumstances. Life has been tough and difficult. You've called us into a kingdom to in our authenticity of heart. To simply live out the right ways of Jesus. That those who are going by their feelings or by their rules, in their starvation, might hunger for something that they see we have and might turn to the Father in heaven. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So what about you this morning? Jesus longs to dress people in his righteousness. And it's not for the go-getters and the high and mighty and all of that, although I said they're not eliminated. The invitation is for everyone. Everyone's eligible. The downhearted, the brokenhearted, the poor of spirit especially. Those who understand that they themselves need the grace of God. I encourage you if you're online to connect with us. Our Father, I pray this morning and thank you for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are an awesome God. And you are one who has an open invitation because Christ himself has made it possible for everyone to come to the kingdom of God. Who longs to clothe us, dress us in his righteousness. The righteousness that far surpasses a better righteousness than a religious works righteousness. So Father, thank you for your grace today. And may we truly live out the blessing of the Lord to those whose hearts are downcast and are hurting and need help. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.